You know, I feel like I have been pleading until I'm blue in the face to convince not only our church family, but everyone everywhere that the hope of the world is not in Washington. The hope in the world is in the gospel of Jesus Christ proclaimed through our church family. And the congressional hearings that we've been watching, I think, just highlight how ultimately divided our nation is and uh, how, uh, how weak and shallow of a hope that our government is. The hope of the world is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because when somebody cries out to Jesus as their Lord and Savior, at that moment, their heart is transformed. They are a new creation. The Holy Spirit indwells them and seals them, never to leave them nor forsake them. Their eternal address is rewritten. They are heaven-bound. They're a child of God. They've been transformed from enmity to God to the very family of God. They have spiritual gifts. They have hope. They have a friend who sticks closer than a brother who's going to walk with them through every valley and lead them onto every mountaintop that he has planned for them. The hope of the world is the gospel of Jesus Christ proclaimed through the family of God. There's a story. It's not in the Bible. It's just a story that after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and the ascension of Christ, Jesus goes to heaven and he's welcomed by the, the, by, by the, the, the heavenly hosts. And Gabriel, that messenger angel, and Michael, that warrior angel, say to Jesus, what's next? And Jesus says, well, the gospel is the hope of the world. And so Michael says, well, since I'm the messenger angel, this is the most important message in the history of eternity, so let me just inscribe the gospel of Jesus Christ across the heavens in blazing fire, and Jesus says, no, that's not the plan. And he says, well, then let me just rearrange the, 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 the stars and the cosmos so that they can see the gospel inscribed in the sky, and Jesus said, no, that's not the plan. And then Michael the archangel said, well, let me subdue every opposition to the message so that they will hear and they will see the gospel clearly. And Jesus said, no, that's not the plan. And they said, well, what's the plan? And, he's gonna, and Jesus said, well, Peter, James, and John, they're going to tell everybody about what I did for them. And they said, Peter, James, and John, are, are you sure about that? And Jesus said, yes. And then, and then those who believe in the message will be handed the baton. And then those followers of me will begin sharing what I've done for them. And generation after generation, these human beings who are redeemed by my blood are the plan. They're simply going to share what I've done for them. And to that, Michael and Gabriel said, do you have a backup plan? Do you have a plan B? There is no plan B. There is no backup plan. You and I, who've been redeemed, forgiven, declared righteous, sealed by the, by the Spirit of Christ, are the plan. Are we heralding it? Who in your life is a lost cause? That is who you are to be praying for. Who in your life is a lost cause? That is who you are to be testifying to. That is who you are to be inviting to come to know Christ as their Lord and Savior. And you say, but you don't understand. They're a lost cause. No, you don't understand. We are all lost causes. You understand that, don't you? We are all lost causes, but by the Spirit of Christ. 
but by the Spirit of Christ, there are no lost causes. You were a lost cause, I was a lost cause, but by the Spirit of Christ, we are saved. Which means there are no lost causes in our life because God is willing that none should perish, but all should come to know Christ as his Lord and Savior. Did you know there is actually a conviction in conservative evangelicalism that when Jesus died on the cross, he atoned for only the sins of those who would one day call out to him as their Lord and Savior. It's one of the tenets of Calvinism. And they believe, they make sense of Romans chapter 9 and 10 by saying, well, God loves some and God just hates others. And that's why some are saved and some aren't. But our Bible tells us that Jesus looked at Jerusalem and he wept over Jerusalem. He said, how I belong to gather you like a mother hen gathers her chicks unto ourselves. Jerusalem, O Jerusalem. The Bible says to us in 1 Peter that God is willing that none should perish. None, but all should come to eternal life. The Bible tells us in John chapter 3, verse 16, for God so loved the world, world in the Greek cosmos, the greater sea of sinful humanity, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, so that whosoever, you or me or anybody else, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And all that to say this, whether it's at home, whether it's at work, you have never in your life, nor will you ever, lock eyes with somebody whom Jesus Christ does not love, whom he did not die for, whom he did not spill his blood to cleanse them of all unrighteousness so that he can give them his spirit and they can be heaven bound if they just call on the name of the Lord to be saved. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the hope of the world. And this message has been entrusted to the saints who have a testimony that he's forgiven us, that he's cleansed us, that he's made us his own, that he's carried us through a valley. And we have to share that testimony with everyone everywhere. That's the hope of the world. So this morning, I just want to share with you Ezekiel chapter 37 as we unpack the reality that God changes hearts. And God changes lives. And in this sermon, I'm going to be talking a bit about the series that we're going to be starting next week, and I'm really excited about that. Ezekiel is an awesome book, but let's just zero in on the first 10 verses of chapter 37. Let me pray. Father in heaven, we pray in Jesus' name that you would cause your word to take root in our heart and produce a harvest of passion for you, of a passion for souls, and a conviction that the gospel of Jesus Christ heralded through the church is the hope of the world, and there are no lost causes because you are willing that none should perish. In Jesus' name, amen. Chapter 37, verse 1. The hand of the Lord was upon me, Ezekiel said. And I believe what the world is dying for is for the hand of the Lord to be upon a man, woman, boy, or girl. This is deeper than simply being saved. This is being anointed. It's being consumed by the Spirit of Christ. 
One of our heroes, Dale Moody, overheard somebody say, the world has yet to see what God will do through the person who is totally consecrated to him. And Dale Moody concluded, I'm going to be that person. Dale Moody surrendered everything in his heart, soul, and mind to the lordship of Christ over his life. And that marked a pivotal point in his ministry from being powerless to being anointed. The hand of the Lord was upon me, Ezekiel said. Is the hand of the Lord upon you? Are you anointed? by the Most High God, so that there is power and authority upon your testimony. My friend Robert Borelli, who was saved out of the Gambino crime family, it's the movie that Martin Scorsese's Goodfellows movie was, uh, was built around. That was his running crew. He's a good friend of mine. We have breakfast and lunch every chance we get. And he says to me with this heavy Italian accent, if you rely on education... You get everything education can give to you. If you rely on eloquence, you get everything eloquence can give you. If you rely on intellect, you get everything intellect can give you. But if you rely on the Holy Spirit, you get everything the Holy Spirit can give to you. Is the Spirit of the Lord upon you because you are anointed, because you are set apart and chosen. There is no limit to the anointing that can rest upon us. It's limited only by by our limitations in seeking his face and surrendering to him. Ezekiel said, the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord. Some commentaries believe this is simply a vision. Ezekiel is in captivity at this point. He's in Babylon. Syria has wiped out Israel at this point. Some... 200 years earlier, 175 years earlier or so, Babylon has just wiped out Jerusalem. Ezekiel is with the exiles. He's in Babylon. And the Spirit of the Lord brings him out. And some commentaries say, well, it was just a vision. He never left Babylon. Others say, if we as humans can get in a jet and fly around, surely the Spirit of Christ can take somebody out of one location and to another. And they believe that the Spirit of the Lord bodily took him out of out of uh, Babylon and brought him to Jerusalem. But the point is, is that the Spirit led him. The world is dying for a man, woman, boy, or girl who is anointed by the Spirit of Christ because they are entirely consecrated, surrendered to, and seeking Christ, and somebody who is led by the Spirit of Christ. You know, our church was recently on a fast. And I'll be honest with you, it wasn't the best fast of my life. It was one of those that was interrupted by, you know, a few breakdowns with potato chips and uh, I was busier than I I should have been and wasn't seeking the Lord as much as I intended. And when the fast was said and done as a church family, I I, I didn't get some of the answers that I needed from the Lord. So I just continued on in my own fast. And one of the things that I was seeking the Lord for was, where do you want our church family to go next in terms of Scripture? What series should we walk through together as a church family? And I was really tempted just to be creative or just to be analytical. 
or just to borrow from another pastor and see what they're doing and tweak it and personalize us, personalize it for us. But I thought, no, I, I've got to hear from the Lord. We, we need a word. We need a, a series through Scripture that's going to arrest all of our attention, that's going to subdue all of our distractions, that's going to beckon us and compel us to seek Him. And so I continued to fast and pray until the Lord gave me an answer. And I'm really excited about a series that we're going to be starting next week together as a church family. And I can't believe that we've never walked through this series together as a church family. And so next week we are starting a series in Isaiah chapters 40 through 66. And this particular series is called The God That You're Looking For. And once the Lord arrested my attention and gave me the conviction that as a church family we're going to be walking through this series, Isaiah chapter 40 through Isaiah chapter 66. I then began to try to pray through and decide what the title was going to be. And I was going to name it something after God's exaltedness, His magnificence. And I even busted out the thesaurus and just trying to find the best word to pinpoint God's extravagance. But words failed me. And there was no word that I could find that would encapsulate this portion of Scripture that points to God's absolute magnificence. And so I decided just to call it the God that you're looking for. Because this is the God that we are looking for. You know, if you and I were oil tycoons, we would probably be wise to to start looking for oil in West Texas. Or we would be wise to look for oil in the Middle East. But what we are as followers of Jesus Christ is we are explorers of His Word and searchers of His promises. And this portion of Scripture in Isaiah chapter 40 through 66 is, I think, more resplendent than any other section of Scripture with the promises of God, the personal promises of God that will make our life abundantly rich with peace, joy, and love. This is like the Himalaya mountains of Scripture where the mountain peaks tower above the clouds. I don't know of any other portion of scripture in the entire Bible that more um, gloriously reveals God's exaltation. I don't know of any other place in all of scripture as Isaiah 40 through 66 that is more startling in its prophetic revelation pointing to the sovereignty of God and the Messiahship of Christ. And I don't know of any other place in all of Scripture than Isaiah 40 through 66 that more startlingly reveals to us the nearness and presence, not just the loftiness, but the nearness and the presence of God. And I wish that I could take you all to Colorado so we could watch a sunrise together, or we could even watch a moonrise together. And as the moon looks like we could just touch it, that we would worship and we would pray and our hearts would expand with the fact that our Creator is near to us and loves us and redeemed us with His blood and wants a relationship with us. But since we can't all go go to Colorado together, we can open up Isaiah chapter 40 through 66. And my desire is that as we walk through these pages of Scripture together, that all of our attention is arrested 
and we are inspired to seek Christ and find satisfaction in Christ. And the blue light specials, whether it's the ladder to success or materialism or addictions or pornography, whatever it might be, all of the distractions of life would just fall by the wayside because we've been so enraptured by the glory and the nearness of Christ that beckons us unto him. So we'll begin this series next week, Isaiah 40 through 66, and and over the last 15 years or so of my life, I don't know of any portion of scripture I have more gone to in the dark nights of my soul or in the valleys of my life to cling to God through his promises and whatever promises I've discovered through Isaiah 40, through Isaiah 66, and through prayer and trust laid those promises at the feet of the God, at the feet of the Lord, every promise has come into fruition. God is faithful. And so I'm very excited about beginning this series with you next week, but I also would like to challenge you to invite somebody with you next week and throughout this series whose heart is longing for something more than this world has to offer. As C.S. Lewis said, if this world can't satisfy us, it's only logical to conclude that we were made for another world. Who is a lost cause in your life? Share with them. Let your light shine and invite them with you. And I would also like to encourage you on your own, in your own personal prayer time, to read Isaiah 40 through 66. Don't run through it. Don't race through it. Just simmer in it. Just let it marinate in your heart and mind. Just abide in the Lord. And if you, if, you, if you read ahead and finish, then start over and over and over and over again. You can never exhaust the mystery and the glory and the hope and the encouragement that's found in this portion of Scripture. And all that to say that I feel the Spirit led me into that direction. And it's a tendency of all of us just to proceed ahead with our own best idea and our own best effort. And then once we get there to say, God, bless me, and God says, bless you, I never told you to do that to begin with. I'll bail you out, but I never told you to do that. And what the world needs more than anybody else is somebody who's anointed and somebody who's sensitive to the leadership of the Lord in their life throughout the day. In fact, I was talking with Austin Farley last night, Austin and Courtney, a precious, precious family who sent their two-and-a-half-year-old August home to heaven a few months back, and God has just been gloriously on display in their life. And Austin last night was on his way to the hospital uh, north of downtown Fort Worth because a good friend of his, uh, his wife, went into septic shock and went into a coma and had a, uh, a couple of brain strokes in the coma. And they were planning on taking her off life support this morning about 10 a.m. And Austin was on his way to the hospital to minister to this family. And he called me last night around 11, and we prayed together. And he says, well, I'm going out there. You know, do you any pointers? And I said, yeah, just don't follow a script. There is no script for this. Be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. Lean on the Holy Spirit and know that you've been anointed for this very assignment. Because we comfort others with the comfort that we have been comforted with in our suffering and affliction. This is what the world needs. 
Not another Republican screaming at the Democrats or another Democrat screaming at the Republicans. Politics has its place, but it is not the hope of the world. What the world is longing for is a man, woman, boy, or girl. And God is no respecter of race or zip codes. He is looking for any man, woman, boy, and girl who will seek him for his anointing and be totally surrendered and consecrated to him and be sensitive to his Holy Spirit's leading so that he can shine through them. This was Ezekiel. And we continue to read. The hand of the Lord is upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord. And he set me down in the valley, in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And these are human bones. Verse 2. And he led me around among them. Picture this prophet walking around a valley. It is dry. It is dusty. The sun is scorching. There's no greenery whatsoever. There might be trees that used to have life, but they are dead. Everything in this valley is dead. And here's Ezekiel walking amongst the bones. And behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley. And behold, they were very dry in this valley of death. And what happens in a valley? Typically, battles are waged in the valleys. Remember David and Goliath, the Philistines were on one hill, the Israelites were on the other, and the valley, the, the, the battle was to be waged in the valley. And here we have slain soldiers in the valley. And they weren't just dead, they were doubly dead. Doubly dead. Because they were bones, not corpses, bones. And these bones were dry, not just dry, very dry. And the Lord says to Ezekiel, son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, oh, Lord God, you know. You know, back in my young life days, I've mentioned to you guys before that there was a cemetery on the east side of Fort Worth that I would go to to pray in between going into the schools to meet kids and build a friendship with them to invite them to Young Life to hear the gospel. Well, in this particular cemetery, I would pray, God, what is my life to be about? And it was in that cemetery that the Lord gave me an eternal perspective that every marble stone that I see represents somebody who lived, dreamed, laughed, cried and died whatever their life consisted of ultimately it was a vapor and their soul passed from life to eternal life through the inevitable doors of death and i raised my hands in that cemetery and i said oh god use me to introduce people to you with the gospel of jesus christ so that their sins are forgiven they are clothed in your righteousness and their eternal address is with you in heaven use me god for this endeavor So a couple of weeks ago, as I was fasting and praying about vision for our church and praying for you, I found myself in that same cemetery, walking through it and just praying. And the Lord once again arrested my attention and gave me an eternal perspective. And I just prayed, God, I just want you to know I am re-upping. 
Any distractions that I've allowed to enter my heart and soul, I repent of and I am re-upping my whole heart and mind. I am consecrating to you. And I pray in Jesus' name, you would use me to introduce people to you. I was walking through a cemetery with marble stone signifying souls who will live in eternity. Ezekiel was walking through a valley of dry bones. And I think it would serve us well to lift up our eyes and see the neighborhood of Fairmount and picture every single rooftop as a tombstone with dry bones inside. For us to look at the skyline of downtown Fort Worth and see every single tower as a tombstone with dry bones inside. And when you go to work and you see people walking around and trying to get their assignments done and playing politics and griping behind each other's back or wondering what they're going to do for the weekend, it would serve us well to look into every face and to see everybody as a tombstone and, and hosting dry bones inside, dead bones. So the Lord asks Ezekiel, son of man, can these bones live? And when we look at the rooftops, when we see the skyline, when we see the people who are put in our lives, God is asking the same thing. Can these bones live? But by the Spirit of Christ, no. But by the Spirit of Christ, there are no lost causes. And I answered, O oh Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O oh dry bones, Hear the word of the Lord. This is truth. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And to that, Pontius Pilate said, what is truth? And if you've been watching news stations over the last couple of weeks, everybody's been saying, what is truth? The truth that this world is dying for is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the truth that's going to set souls free. This is the truth that people are longing to hear. There's a story about a great evangelist who was, I believe it was uh, Charles Finney, who was getting ready to preach at a service, and he was sort of testing the acoustics of the building, and so he was just saying John 3.16, and when he said John 3.16, there was a deacon or a janitor at the back of the auditorium who got saved right then and there. That's the power of truth. It's the truth that will set us free. It's the truth that will set your friends free, which is why the Bible tells us in the book of Revelation that we will prevail by the word of our testimony. We have to share our testimony. We have to share what Jesus has done in our life, how he saved us, how we're heaven bound, how he's a friend who sticks closer than even a brother. We have to share how he didn't just save us from our sins, but he's carrying us through our valleys and how he answers prayers and how through a dynamic relationship with Christ, our heart is alive. We have to share what Christ has been doing in our life. Because we live amongst very dry bones. Just within the last seven days, a friend of mine, a friend of uh, Rocio as well, she's a co-worker of Rocio, an old friend of mine, took her own life. 
went into her 18-year-old daughter's closet and hung herself. Months before that, an 18-year-old boy took his life. I have friends who are losing their lives to addictions. I have friends who are losing their lives to the illusion of the American dream. And so one day they get to the very last rung on that ladder before they take their last breath on this earth and realize that there is nothing at the top of this ladder and they've wasted their lives. I have friends who are losing their lives to a lie, to false religion. The world is dying for truth. I have friends who are squandering their lives, peddling a false solution that won't truly give hope. The world is dying for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And how is the gospel going to go forth? By you sharing what Jesus has done in your life, in me, sharing what Jesus has done in my life. The gospel is the hope of the world, heralded through the local church. Verse 4, then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live and I will lay sinews upon you and I will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. Verse 7, so I prophesied as I was commanded and as I prophesied, there was a sound and behold, a rattling. And this is like something out of a sci-fi movie. There was a sound, there was rattling because none of these bones were in order. It was all discombobulated. In fact, this is where that old hymn comes from, them bones, them bones, them dry bones. Do you remember that? It came from this portion of scripture. I mean, we're talking about a skull over here, and that skull's rib cage is over there, and that skull's knee bone is way over there. And they're stacked on top of each other. They're just shuffled together like dominoes. There's no order to these bones whatsoever. And so Ezekiel stands up And he's submissive to the word of the Lord. And he prophesies over the bones. And there's a sound and there's a rattling and bones are coming together. This skull bone is flying across the valley. This ribbon, that ribbon, that rib are flying together. They're attaching to this spine and these hips and bones are just rattling. It's like a tornado of bones rattling together. And when the tornado leaves, all the bones are in order and they're lying together. It's perfectly complete skeletons. And then sinews and tendons and muscles begin wrapping around these skeletons and then flesh begins growing and then hair begins growing and then they are warm corpses laying all across this valley but no life verse 9 And I looked, and behold, and there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. The world is dying for the church to proclaim the truth, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the world is dying for that truth to be saturated by the Spirit of Christ. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord the God, and the breath, no doubt, is the Holy Spirit. Thus says the Lord God, 
Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. This reminds you of Adam in the Garden of Eden, a corpse, until God breathed into his nostrils and he became a living being. Verse 10. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceeding great army. This is a prophecy of Israel, who was restored in 1948. And they are now they are now no longer discombobulated across the entire globe, but they've now come together and they are an orderly assembly of corpses, but there's no life in them, and the breath is the prophecy of a revival that will sweep through that land. And in our context as well, in our immediate context, this is a picture of the world is dying for truth. What is truth? The truth is Jesus Christ. What the world is dying for is Jesus Christ. But we must proclaim the truth in the power of the Holy Spirit, which is why the world is dying for a man, woman, boy, and girl who is anointed, who is sensitive to the Holy Spirit, who will proclaim truth, but proclaim truth through a spirit of prayer. We have to pray. The truth are seeds that take root, that are implanted into the hearts and souls and minds of our lost friends. But the rain that will water those seeds, causing new and eternal life to grow, is prayer. And as we pray for our lost friends, then the Spirit of Christ will bring forth that seed that was planted into their heart. And they will call on the name of the Lord to be saved. We have to pray for our friends who need Christ. I mean, pray in anguish. Pray until you lose sleep. Make sure that you access your prayer closet. Pray. It is no secret that our culture has never before been more immoral. And it is also no secret that our churches have never before been larger. Where is the disconnect? How can conservative evangelicals pack out tens of thousands and our culture, our community, be so unaffected by the gospel? Where is the disconnect? I believe it's because our pews are full, but our prayer closets are empty. And we're dry-eyed. The dry-eyed church will never transform its community. We have to pray. We have to cry out to Christ to save souls. Not a theoretical, ethereal revival, but a personal revival in your heart so that your friends see Jesus and you and you boldly share with them and you know that those words are anointed because you have been seeking the face of God and fasting and praying for them and they're going to want the Jesus that's in you I mentioned Austin earlier I've been just so encouraged by friends of theirs who've seen them weather their severe trial and count it glory to God because it's been an opportunity to trust Christ. And an anointing rested upon them, and friends said, you know what, I have my faith system, but it's not what you have, I want what you have. Can you have lunch with me? Can you talk with me? You see, when a lost and dying world truly sees us consecrated to Christ, trusting in Christ, seeking the face of God, and in our prayer closets, we're praying for them, they are going to want the same God that we know. We live in a world that is dry, very dry. 
This world is thirsting for truth. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Proclaimed with love, proclaimed in humility, proclaimed in brokenness. You know, if you go home today and you Google, why are Christians so? And you know how that has a list of the most sought for inquiries? I hate to say this, but if you type in, why are Christians so, it immediately comes up. Why are Christians so judgmental? Why are Christians so mean? Why are Christians so hateful? I pray that 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 shifts. Why are Christians so loving? Why are Christians so merciful? Why are Christians so kind? Why are Christians so helpful? As the saying goes, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. That is absolutely the case with evangelism. There's a story about a granddad walking along a beach after a hurricane. And all these starfish washed ashore. And they lived on a beach and amongst a cluster of beaches. There were thousands, tens of thousands of starfish on all of these beaches. The granddad and dad are walking along the beach and they'll stop periodically and they'll pick up a starfish and they'll throw it in. They'll walk a little bit further and they'll pick up another starfish and they'll throw it in. And a skeptical onlooker says, sir, there are hundreds of islands, tens of thousands of starfish washed up. Do you really think that you're making a difference? And to that The granddad picked up another starfish and threw it in. And he said, it made a difference to that one. And so let's impact the world one life at a time. And we will see a revival sweep through our land. Not because it's legislated, but because God gives new hearts to everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. This is the hope of the world and this is the hope of our nation. You know, Jonathan Edwards preached a, re- preached a sermon back before our nation was born called Sinners in the Hands of the Angry God. And that sermon sparked a revival and it swept through the colonies, forever transforming the trajectory of North America. Sinners in the hands of the angry God. The reports go that people are hiding under the pews and they're crying out for God's grace and repenting of their sins. Did you know that the night before Jonathan Edwards preached that sermon, there was a group of people who met together in a barn and they prayed all night long for the Spirit of Christ to fall upon the lost people so that their hearts would be transformed. There was another great awakening that swept through our nation. I mean, Transforming the culture, the trajectory of our, of, of our country. It's called the Second Great Awakening. But did you know that that awakening was preceded by a businessman sending flyers across New York City saying, uh, join me at 12 o'clock noon uh, Wednesday uh, every week for one hour, just kind of come and go. We're going to be praying for revival. We're going to be praying for our nation. I believe it was on a Zulu street in New York. 
the first meeting there were about eight or so people, the next meeting about 20 or so people, and before you know it, there were prayer meetings sweeping the nation, and revival was so rich across our land that the testimonies unfold that people went in for a haircut and they overheard people sharing what Jesus has done in their life and by the time they finished their their haircut they gave their lives to Christ reports uh, like like this uh, sailors go off to sea cursing and they come back praising God and a revival swept across our land but it began with a group of people fasting and praying and seeking the face of God and declaring their hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ and the transformation of hearts and communities. The Young Life Ministry was born by a man named Jim Rayburn. He was a youth pastor at the church, and his, the lead pastor said, I'll take care of the kids inside the church. You just go get take care of the kids outside the church. Bring them in. That's evangelism. He didn't know what to do, so he went to a group of ladies in his church, five ladies, and they just began praying over him. And through that, God clarified his vision, and the Young Life ministry was born. And it goes on and on and on. The power of God is preceded by the prayers of God. So it is with the early church. When they were afraid, they prayed. When they didn't know what to do, they prayed. When they needed direction from God, they prayed. When they were attacked, they prayed. When they were persecuted, they prayed. When they were slandered, they prayed. When they were timid, they prayed. They prayed, they prayed, they prayed, prayed, and the power of God came upon them, and the power lasted as long as the prayers lasted. And so it is throughout history. When the prayers ceased, the power dried up. A revival, which is what our nation desperately needs, it's what Fort Worth and Fairmount desperately needs, a revival is like a hurricane. You can't hold a revival. We're going to hold a revival meeting. You can no more hold a revival meeting than you can hold a hurricane. You can't hold it. But you can predict it. You know when a hurricane's coming. People start boarding up their houses. And in the same way, you know when a revival is on the way because people begin accessing their prayer closets again. People begin seeking the face of God. People begin crying out to God. Would you stand with me, please? This morning, I just want to invite you to access the altar and repent of sins, repent of distractions. And like I did in that cemetery on the east side just a few weeks ago, I raised my hands towards heaven, and I prayed, God, I just, wanna, I just want to tell you that I'm re-upping. You've had my life, and you've been so faithful. Oh, God, you are faithful. You are faithful to me. And I am just telling you I'm re-upping. The last 25 years, my life has been yours. The next 25 years... If I have that many, my life is yours. I'm re-upping God. I repent of any distractions and I commit my life to you. The world is dying for somebody who's anointed. The Spirit of God is upon you. As my friend Robert Borelli said, rely on eloquence, rely on education, uh, rely on money, rely on whatever it is. You get everything that gets you. But you rely on the Spirit of Christ. You get everything the Spirit of Christ gets you. And that's anointing. So maybe you just need to re-up. And you need to say, God, my life is yours. And realize that what the world is dying for is the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ through a church body scattering into the highways and the byways 
telling everyone everywhere what Jesus has done in their life. That's a revival. That's what the world is dying for. Truth. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Truth that is saturated by the prayers of the saints. So Isaiah said, here am I, Lord, send me. Here am I, Lord, send me. I just want to invite you to access this stage as an altar and pray, here am I, Lord, send me. Would you bow your heads, Father in heaven. We live in a community of dry bones. The housetops are tombs. The skyscraper, the buildings in downtown are tombs. The bodies are tombs. And Lord, you ask the question, can these bones live again? And through faith in Christ, they'll be resurrected into new and eternal life. They'll be uh, born again from enmity with you into your very family. We pray for the boldness to speak the truth. And we pray that this truth would be saturated in the prayers of the saints. If this ministered to you, if you say, you know what, I, I want God to use me greatly to spark a revival, just raise your hand high. Okay, God, you see these hands, and we just pray like Isaiah, here am I, God, send me. So let's respond, guys.